Let's turn in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1. We continue our series through the first chapters of Genesis. We've already considered God's creation of the heavens and the earth in general, his creation of light and the sun, moon, and stars, his creation of the land and firmament and sea, his creation of the plant life and the animal life, and today now we come to God's creation of human beings. Let's begin our reading at verse 26. That's where the text also begins. The text will include portions of verses 26, 27, 28, and also chapter 2, verse 7. Let's read that far. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. And now as I pointed out before, here at verse 4 begins really a new account of the creation but now focusing on certain details. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We read that far. There's a lot here in these verses, so I had to divide the text up a little bit. So let me read the portions that is the basis of the sermon. Verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. 
Now I'm going to reserve that next part there for later. The first part of verse 28. And the text continues, And subdue it, that is, and subdue the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Also included is verse 7 of chapter 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Beloved, we have seen that the book of Genesis answers some of the greatest questions that we ask as human beings. For example, how did the universe begin? How did life begin on earth? How did plant life begin? How did animal life begin? How did all of these many species of plants and animals come into being? The book of Genesis gives us the answers to those questions. Among these great questions that we human beings ask, these great mysteries, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, for us, namely the question, where did we come from? How did we get here? How did human beings originate? Just look at yourself as a human being. You have a complex body with many systems and many organs functioning in an amazing way. You have a tremendous level of higher intelligence compared to all the other creatures in the universe. We use highly sophisticated systems of language and communication compared to other creatures. We have an amazing mental capacity called consciousness that modern psychologists still do not know how to define, and they really don't know what it is. We are conscious of ourselves, conscious of our own existence, conscious that there is a universe outside of ourselves, something that other creatures do not have. We have a moral sense of good and evil, right and wrong. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What is man? And where did man come from? That's one of the great mysteries and questions that we ask as human beings. We know that unbelieving man tries to answer that question as well. He tries to answer it from his viewpoint, which is the viewpoint that there is no God and that the world around us is only and purely a material universe. And if he believes that and starts with that point, then he comes to the answer that man also came about by chance. Through millions and billions of years of evolutionary processes, of random genetic mutations in which lower creatures evolved into higher creatures, and finally we came onto the scene. But we are going to hear what God says in the scriptures because only God was there in the beginning and only God really knows who we are and how we got here. So let's consider in the beginning God's creation of human beings. Notice in the first place we are formed out of the dust of the ground. In the second place, created in the image of God and finally mandated to have dominion. We are looking here at the sixth day of the creation of the world. 
And we read in our text that on the sixth day, after God created the beasts of the earth, the creeping things, and the cattle, God said, let us make man. And verse 27 tells us, so God created man. That's a very simple statement, but it already answers our question. Where did man come from? God created man. As we saw in Psalm 100, we did not make ourselves, but it is he that hath made us. We are his creatures. Chapter 2, verse 7 gives us much more detail about how the Lord created us in the beginning. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What a wonder that must have been to behold if there was anyone there to watch. Just think about those words and what they are telling us must have happened later on that sixth day after the animals were created. If anyone was there, God was there. What did God see? God suddenly saw what he was causing to happen. A swirl of dust began to rise up from the earth and to move about. We don't know how quickly, if it was gradual or very quickly, that swirl of dust began to take form, began to take the shape of a body that did not look altogether different from some of the animals that God had made. That dust started to take the shape of a head and hands and arms and a torso and legs and feet. From the dust of the ground, the molecules, the compounds made up of the basic elements of the universe, of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and other elements, were miraculously fused together into molecules, compounds, proteins, cells, tissues, organs, bones, tendons, ligaments, inside that first human body. Eyes, ears, a mouth. All of this was beginning to take shape there on the sixth day by a miracle of God's creation. A head, not yet alive, but containing an organ of wondrous intricacy that we are told has more cells in it than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Connected to a system of neurons and nerves that connects through the whole body. A heart strong muscle prepared to pump life-giving blood throughout the body, lungs ready to inhale that fresh, pure air that God had created in the beginning, a skeleton of strong bones giving structure and support to the body. The dust fashioned this marvelous, intricate, complex system called a human body. And then we are told in the text that God, the Lord God, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This was a fully mature male human body. It was not an infant, not a little baby, a fully grown, fully mature human body. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Notice it does not say that Adam breathed the breath of life, into his own nostrils. But God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And whenever we read in the scriptures that God breathed, 
we are to think of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Spirit is his breath. God breathed into his nostrils. That means God breathed the Holy Spirit into Adam. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. As we have seen, the Holy Spirit is the one who works, who gives, who sustains life in the creation. The Holy Spirit was breathed into Adam, and the Holy Spirit made him alive. The Holy Spirit awakened him, and for the first time he opened his eyes. He sucked in a big gulp of that fresh air of the Garden of Eden. His heart began to pump the blood through his body. He stood up, a living human being. God had breathed life into him, and he became a living soul. Now we saw that the animals were also living souls, according to the original Hebrew word, but the animals were living souls whose soul was in their blood. They were physical, material creatures. They don't have a spiritual soul, but this creature into whom God breathed the breath of life, became a living spiritual soul. He became a creature of physicality and spirituality in a unity of body and soul. We learn that from the rest of Scripture more clearly, like in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 21, where Solomon writes about the fact that when we die, our body goes to the dust, but the Spirit returns to God that gave it. Our Lord Jesus, in Matthew 10, verse 28, he says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. But be afraid of him who can kill body and soul in hell. Jesus teaches us clearly, we are a body and a soul. Physical and spiritual creatures. And so Adam stood up, alive, a living, breathing human being, the very first ever made. God did not immediately proceed to create Eve, but he created her later in the day, as we will learn more about in a future sermon, Lord willing. But in our text, we do read the simple truth, chapter 1, verse 27, male and female created he them. God made the first human beings in two distinct genders, two distinct biological sexes, male and And female, the male who was made first, had certain distinct organs and traits and even mental characteristics. He looked different. And later when God created the female out of the man, she also had her own unique organs, traits, and mental characteristics. And yet they looked the same as human beings, yet different, distinct, two different genders. That was the work of God in the beginning. Now, what we learned here is already applicable to us, as we can see that what God did with the very first man, he has done with all of us. He has formed us and fashioned us out of the molecules and compounds of this earth through our mothers and fathers. He miraculously fashioned us in the wombs of our mothers, bringing together all of our organs and parts and systems so that we were born into this world, complex human bodies and souls as well. 
with our unique and distinct personalities and traits. Some of us male, some of us female. That too is part of God's created work. God did not leave it up to us to choose what gender we would be, whether we would be a male or whether we would be a female. But God created us a male or a female, just as in the beginning. Every human being who comes into this world is either a male or a female. Even biologists know that that's a fact. And so God created man. Male and female created he them. A very special creature. His crowning achievement. The pinnacle of the created order. Higher, superior to all the other living creatures on earth. And even we can go so far as to say, central in the whole universe was that man standing there in the Garden of Eden. Central to God's purposes and plans is the human race. Now, evolutionists such as the late Carl Sagan, who was a very well-known worldwide evolutionist and atheist, if not atheist, then agnostic, they would say that human beings came about in a very different way because they do not start with believing in God. They start with believing only what we can see, the material universe. They believe that human beings came into being just like all other living creatures by chance, that molecules in the early earth somehow, by chance, randomly forged together against all odds into the first living protozoa, which mutated and, through survival of the fittest, developed and evolved and changed from one kind into another kind into another until mammals came on the scene. And from the class of mammals, there eventually evolved primates, And primates evolved, and then we have what is sometimes called cavemen, and then cavemen evolved into homo sapiens, which is the term that they give to us. Now, we do not believe that view of the origin of man. We don't reject that merely because we are are insulted to be categorized with apes, chimpanzees, baboons, and monkeys. Surely we are insulted to be categorized in the same class as primates, primates which we have seen are beasts of the field. But that's not the mere reason why we reject that view. We reject it because God teaches us in his word how man originated. God tells us in very simple terms how we came into being. He tells us. I formed you from the dust of the ground. I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. I created you human beings. I am your maker. You did not make yourself. Mother Nature did not make you. Chance did not make you. No other gods made you. I made you. That's why we believe it. Now, evolutionists like Carl Sagan, and I heard him say this just not that long ago, he's passed away now, but... There are plenty of videos of his speeches and lectures that you can find. And he has said that the creationist view is a view that leads to cosmic pride on the part of the human race. He accuses us of cosmic pride. 
Why? Because we believe, according to Scripture, that human beings are special creatures. Special among all the living creatures on the earth. Indeed, the highest creatures that God made, superior to all the others. We even are so bold as to maintain that the human race is the center of the whole universe from God's point of view. We maintain that human beings are in a higher and different category from the animals, and so he says that's pride, cosmic pride. But the reality and the fact is that his own belief arises out of pride, and it produces pride as well. The theory of evolution on the origin of man arises out of pride. What pride? This pride. That man says, I will not listen to what God tells me about my origin. I know better than God. I am smarter than God. I don't need his word. I don't need his revelation. You can't expect me to believe what that old ancient book teaches. You have to understand science is more sophisticated and advanced today. We know the answers. We can determine where man came from. You have to trust me. I know better. That's pride. Not only that, but this theory about the origin of man also leads to certain kinds of pride. How about racial pride? We saw in the years after Charles Darwin, social Darwinism developed. And that's not an aberration. That's a logical result of Darwinism. Namely, if human beings came about through evolution, then naturally, different races of human beings are at a different stage of evolution. And therefore, we should be able to conclude that one race is better and higher and more advanced than other races. And so that results in racism. It results in racial pride. And that's exactly what many white men thought, that they were higher, more evolved, and better, therefore, than other races. It also results in the pride of all kinds of immorality. After all, if there is no God telling me who I am and who I must be, then I can choose what I think is good and evil, what I think is right and wrong. I am a God to myself. The theory of evolution which says there is no God doesn't really say that. What it says is, I am God. I am God. The teaching of the scripture arises out of true humility. Even though the scripture tells us man is special, man is God's crowning achievement. God created man to be central in the whole universe. That doesn't lead to pride. For the fir- in the first place, this belief arises out of a humble faith that says, I cannot find the answer to that great question. I have to submit myself intellectually to the scriptures. I have to submit myself to what God says. I have to tell myself, I can't find the answer. I can't. But I believe what God says. And then it also leads, and ought to lead, to racial humility as well. The Christian who believes in creationism ought never to have a shred of racism in his thinking. In reality, there are not many races. There's only one race. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. 
And he went out preaching to the Gentiles. And in Acts 17, he said to the Greeks, a Jew said to the Greeks, one ethnic group to another ethnic group, God has made all human beings of one blood. The same blood runs through the veins of every human being, no matter what language, culture, or color of skin they have. There aren't many races. There's one race, the human race. And therefore, who are we to say that our race is better than another? This also ought to lead to humility in regard to morals. The idea that God created me means, therefore, I must obey him too. I'm not God. I'm a creature of the dust. That's what the scripture tells me. That's humility. The Bible says, you are not God. You are creatures. You are made of the dust. Dust. That's what we are. So you see how God humbles us and he exalts us. You're my crowning achievement, but you're only dust. You're made of the dust of the earth. And never forget that. God tells us that we are more precious to him than the animals. We've seen that in our family visits. Matthew 6, Behold the birds of the air. Aren't you much better than they are, Jesus says? Behold the sparrows, two of them, and one doesn't fall to the ground except your father wills it. Aren't you of much more value than many sparrows? Jesus said that. We are of greater value to God than the animals. We are superior to them in God's eyes. But we are not free to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We are not permitted to create ourselves either. God has made us male or female. That means we are a male or a female. We do not have the right to change our gender. But we must subject ourselves to the will of our Maker. We must rejoice in what he has given to us, how he has made us. Everything that you are is exactly how God intended you to be. Your body, your shape, your size, your height, your color of skin and color of hair and eyes, your personality. He determined all of it. Who are we to change it? God made the first man as the head of the whole human race and the first woman as the first mother. The whole human race is organically connected to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are real people. They were real people and they are real people. They're in heaven right now. And for those liberal theologians who say they are just mythical creations of Moses in which he was trying to express the fact that God made the human race They're denying the existence of real persons who are in heaven at this moment. Adam and Eve were our first parents. And we are all descendants of them, organically, biologically connected to them. And therefore, too, Adam is the head of the whole human race. He is the head of all human beings, and the actions that Adam would perform would have consequences for his whole family after him, as we will see. The proof that God made human beings as his highest creatures 
is also found in our text in the truth that he made man in his own image and after his own likeness. God did make, not make any other creatures that way. He made the heavens and the earth in their grandeur. He made light shining in the darkness. He made the dry land out of the waters and the firmament, separating the waters and the waters. He made the beautiful plants and flowers of the field. He made all the animals and their vast variety. But then he made man in his own image and in his own likeness. No other creatures were made that way. True, every single creature somehow is a revelation of its maker, and every creature shows the handiwork of God, but that's not the same as being in the image of God and after his likeness. Imagine that you have a mirror in your hand. You look into the mirror, and you see in that mirror an image, an image of yourself. An image, which is also a likeness. You can use those terms interchangeably. It's an image of you. It's a likeness of you. Now, it could be that you would drop that mirror on the ground and a big crack would form throughout that mirror. And then you look into it again and you still see an image of yourself, but it's distorted and cracked. You might not call it a likeness anymore. There's still an image there, but it's not a likeness anymore. That shows us the difference between those terms. They refer to the same reality, but from two different perspectives. And an image is a reflection. Like if you go to a lake, a calm morning, a pure, crystal clear lake, you look into it, you see the reflection of yourself, but you throw a stone into the lake and the ripples form. You can still see something of yourself reflected there, but it's not a likeness anymore. God created man in his own image and in his own likeness. When God looked at Adam, he not only saw Adam's outward physical appearance, but he looked at the whole human creature that he had just made, and he saw a reflection of himself. He saw himself in Adam and in Eve. A resemblance. What does that mean? It surely and obviously means that God made man to be higher than all the other creatures. No other creature can say that. God didn't look at them and see a reflection of himself. He saw the handiwork of himself, but not a reflection of himself, as when he saw Adam and Eve. Now, it is certainly true that God made man different from the animals. There's the plants, the lowest life forms. There's the animals, and there's man, the highest Life form. We've seen that man is a body and soul, physical and spiritual, unlike the animals, unlike the plants. Man is a creature of higher intelligence than the animals. Man is a creature that has consciousness of himself and the universe outside himself. A creature that has a sense of moral duty of right and wrong. That's all true. God, too, is a spirit, a great infinite intelligence. But that's not really the idea and the content of this image of God in man. What else could possibly be the idea then? Well, if we look carefully at the text, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
Male and female created he them, we are told immediately. Why is that so closely connected? Perhaps, as some have suggested, God saw Adam and Eve together, and that was a reflection and a resemblance of himself. He didn't just create one, but two. And that was a reflection of the fact that he is not one, but more than one. Notice in the text, in verse 26, we have the astounding words. God said, let us make man in our image. The rest of the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, emphasizes there's only one God. That was the great confession of the Israelites in the Old Testament. There's only one God, not many gods. But here God is saying, let us make man in our image. Some Jewish interpreters suggest, maintain, that this is what they call a a plurality of majesty. That it only expresses the fact that God is great and majestic, and so it's put in the plural. That doesn't make any sense. Because we don't find this in the rest of the Old Testament. We don't find this kind of speech throughout the Bible. God doesn't say this again in very many places, only a couple Let us, let us, let us. Others suggest that God was here speaking to the angels that he had already created in the first day. He said to all the angels, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. That doesn't make any sense either. We don't read anywhere that God used the angels to to create man. Rather, when God says, let us make man in our image, God is already expressing in a dim and shadowy fashion that although he is the one and only God, he is not a lonely God. He's a God of more than one person. There's more than one person in the Godhead so that those persons can speak to one another and can confer with each other in the work that they do as the one God. Our Belgic Confession of Faith says in Article 9, quoting this verse, from this saying, let us make man in our image, it appears that there are more persons than one in the Godhead. And when he saith God created, he signifies the unity. In the very same text, we read in the singular, and God created him. Let us make man, and God created him. The Belgian Confession says that's an expression of the fact that God is more than one person, but he's only one God. Perhaps then the image of God was this, that God created more than one person. He created two persons male and female, as a reflection and a resemblance of himself as a God of more than one person dwelling together in fellowship and communion and love. Be that as it may, and there's truth to that, why then did God only create two human beings? Why did he not create three? Because we know from the rest of Scripture that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
But God created two persons, not a father and son, but a husband and wife. So that view does not seem very convincing either. Perhaps another possibility of the meaning, because we also read in the same text that God made man in his own image and said, let them have dominion. Maybe that's the meaning of the image of God, that God said, let them have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the cattle and over the creeping things. Just as God has dominion over all the creatures, he gave man dominion over all the creatures. And God looks at man and sees him ruling the creatures, and he sees a reflection of himself. There's truth to that as well. But that does not seem satisfying either, does it? That the only meaning of the image is that man does something similar to what God does. Whereas the text seems to be teaching that man is something. That his nature is something that looks like God. When our Reformed fathers looked at this concept of the image of God, searched the whole scriptures to find the answer to the question, what does this mean? They came to the conclusion that it must mean that God created man good, holy, righteous, gracious, merciful, loving, kind, wise. God created man morally upright. God created man Just as he is love and grace and mercy, righteousness, holiness, and truth, God created Adam and Eve so that they were already inclined to walk in all goodness and righteousness and holiness. And so when God looked at man and he saw a righteous creature, the animals weren't righteous, the the plants weren't righteous, they weren't capable of love and graciousness and mercy, But he looked at man and he saw a creature capable of righteousness, holiness, goodness, truth, just like himself. Man is like a mirror. God created man to be a mirror. Man is a reflector, unlike the animals and other creatures. No matter what, every human being, sinful or upright, reflects Someone. When God made Adam and Eve and he looked into that mirror, he saw a reflection of himself. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Reformed creeds tell us they lost, they forfeited those gifts. They cast them away. Man was no longer righteous and holy and good. He no longer was capable of love, true love, and graciousness, and mercy, and forgiveness. But he became totally corrupt, depraved, and wicked. He was still a mirror. He still reflected an image. But the image that man now reflected was the image of the serpent. That's why God sent his son into the world. He sent Jesus Christ into the world. And the New Testament scriptures teach us that Jesus is the true and real and perfect image 
of the living God. Colossians 1 verse 15 and 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 teaches us that Christ is the image of the living God. The true image. God sent his son into this same human nature. Jesus was born into this world. A human like us. A higher intelligence than the animals. A moral creature. A rational creature. But not only that. Jesus was born into this world perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly wise. And all his life long, he reflected the living and true God. Everyone who looked at Jesus saw a reflection of God in heaven. A perfect likeness of God is reflected in Jesus. You look at Jesus and you see God. And it was especially then when he gave his life on the cross that he revealed the nature of God as a God of self-giving love. Also a God of righteousness and justice and truth. And through his shed blood, he has made a way for us once again to be renewed in the image of God. Jesus Christ now pours his spirit into us. And according to Ephesians 4 verse 24 and Colossians 3 verse 10, he renews us in the image of God, in righteousness and holiness. The whole life of sanctification is the Lord Jesus Christ working in you and working in me through his Spirit to restore in us what was lost, the image of God, so that more and more we look like God again. And when we get to heaven at last, we will perfectly reflect and resemble our God. In Romans 8, verse 29, we read, that God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. To the image of his Son. So we are not only restored into the image of God, but the image of God as it is in Christ. We begin to look like Christ. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, he fulfilled what the psalmist writes in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8... David reflects upon our text when he says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, Thou hast put all things under his feet. In Hebrews chapter 2, the apostle shows us that this speaks ultimately of Christ. Hebrews 2 verse 5, But unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedst him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor.
when God made Adam and Eve in the beginning, he gave them a mandate. We begin to look at that mandate today. He said, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He also said to be fruitful and multiply. We will consider that later. But he said, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Now, when God made Adam first, before he made Eve, he took Adam and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, to live there, to dwell there. Then God brought him to the midst of the garden and gave him the command about the two trees there. Then God caused all the animals, two by two, to come before Adam to see what he would name them. And then finally, when Adam saw that there was two of each animal, but only one of him, God made Eve and brought her to him. And then it was when God spoke the mandate, after he created Adam and Eve. Notice that in our text, verse one, chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, they were both created, They were both standing there. They were both listening. The mandate came to the man and to the woman, subdue the earth and have dominion. God had made them in his image and likeness, with intelligence, with righteousness. And now, he says, I have a job for you. I have qualified you. I have fit you for this job. I have crowned you as king and queen over the creation. And now I have a job for you. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God wanted man and woman, he wanted the human race to subject the earth to his control, to his rule, to unlock its powers, its potentials, to build, to create, to explore, to discover, to learn. Adam and Eve didn't know everything when they were first created. They didn't know the distance to the stars. They didn't even know the distance of the Garden of Eden. They had much to learn. God wanted them to learn. Go forth, subdue the earth, have dominion over all the animals. And do that now as righteous creatures in service to me your true king. For my glory, in my praise, in love for me, as I love you. But Adam and Eve only did that for a little while before they fell into sin. They lost the ability to subdue the earth and have dominion over the creatures to the glory of God, in service to God, in love for God, and by faith in God. After the fall, man continues to subdue the earth. For thousands of years, man has been subduing the earth and having dominion over all the animals as well. But he is no longer capable of doing that to the glory of God and in service to God as a sinner. There is a teaching that we are aware of called common grace. That teaching says, as taught by Abraham Kuyper especially, in the 19th and early 20th century, 
That teaching says that after the fall, God displayed or he bestowed a certain kind of grace on all human beings, both wicked and righteous, believers and unbelievers, so that he restrained their sinfulness by his grace and he allowed them to do some good deeds to build good and God-pleasing cultures and civilizations, art and literature and architecture. He enabled them by this common grace to be able to subdue the earth and have dominion, at least to some extent, in a way that pleases God. And as you well know, the denomination of which we are a part began out of a controversy over that very theory in which our founders said, no, there isn't any common grace like that. There's only a particular grace. Grace is a power of God to save. It's a grace that he only gives to his people, to believers. As far as the unbelievers, if they are elect, God will save them by his grace. But if they are not, then all they do throughout their whole life is sin. They can't do any good. And yet they continue to subdue the earth. They continue to have dominion over all the animals of the field and the ocean and the forest and the sky. But now they do so sinfully. They do so selfishly and proudly. They do so to gain fame and attention, to gain power and wealth and pleasures and treasures in the earth. So they destroy the earth. They pollute the earth. They do whatever they want with the creatures. They don't care at all about being good stewards and having good and wise dominion over the creation. They destroy it for their own wealth, their own fame and power. And if they don't do that, if they are, let's say, environmental activists who react against that, and they seek to care for the earth and care for the animals and the trees, and they are very, very interested in all those things, one might think, well, Aren't they doing a good thing then? Aren't they serving the Creator? Many of those who are environmental activists, if not most, are either atheists or agnostics, pantheists. Many of them, if not most of them, are serving the creation itself. They are not subduing the earth and having dominion over the animals out of love for God, for the glory of God, by faith in God, or in service to God. They're doing it in service to themselves, in service to mankind. They're doing so out of the fear that this dying world is going to be destroyed by global warming and other ills and problems. And we need to do something to save ourselves, to save the human race. That's not obedience to this calling of God. Not to mention as they subdue the earth and unlock the powers of this creation. They develop technology and they advance civilization, but they always use it, and we do too by nature, in the service of sin. Just think of one modern marvel, the internet. As man has unlocked the amazing technologies in the creation and made this system of communication throughout the earth, how is the internet used for all manner of immorality and pride and wickedness that's abominable to God? 
But God calls us, his children, to this mandate as well. There is a grace of God that he bestows on us, his children. Not only us, but his children throughout the earth. And he gives to us the grace to be obedient to this mandate. As his children, in thankfulness for all that he has done, not only to create us, but also to redeem us. He says to you, beloved, Go forth this week subduing the earth and having dominion over it. In your job, whatever your job is, whatever God has given you to do, do it in service to your God and King and to your Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't live for yourself. You don't live for mankind. You live and you serve your King in heaven. You do all for his glory and in gratitude to him. Subdue the earth when you till the ground with your tractor and your plow and you throw the seeds out into the field and you irrigate and you harvest the crops in the fall. Subdue the earth, digging into it, pouring foundations, building homes and other structures. Subdue the earth, studying it in the college and in the university, learning how to do engineering of roads and bridges. Explore the earth, unlock its powers, Advance the technology. Do all of those things. As Christians, we do not flee out of the world and live in some corner by ourselves. We're involved in the world. God calls us to be active and busy in every sphere of life on the earth. Whether you're a builder or a farmer or a driver or an electrician or a plumber, whatever is your job, subdue the earth for the glory of God. Have dominion over the creatures. As a farmer with your pigs or your cows or your horses or your sheep. As a hunter going out into the field. As a a fisher casting your line. As an owner of pets for your own pleasure and enjoyment. Have dominion over all those creatures of God knowing that they're creatures of God. Dealing with them as good stewards That means that, as we have seen, we don't senselessly destroy the creation as the ungodly, nor do we worship the creature as the ungodly. But we understand who we are, who God is, who the creatures are, and we act as good stewards, kings and queens, for Jesus' sake, governing and ruling, yes, for the service of mankind, for the love of the neighbor, but above all, for the love of God and his glory. That's our mandate. It's a mandate that touches all of life in this earth. That mandate teaches, as we find in the rest of Scripture, whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men. Amen. Our Father and our Maker, we give thee thanks for the word of the Scripture explained to us this day. We thank thee for the knowledge that thou art our Maker, and we are thy creatures. We thank thee for recreating us in the image of Jesus Christ. And we thank thee, too, for giving us a mandate, giving us work to do, in this earth, with our hands, with our minds, 
Grant that we might be faithful and diligent and productive, that we might go forth to work tomorrow in the home or in the workplace, eager to serve Jesus Christ in every sphere.